A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about the upcoming conference season. Alex Hearn interviews comics writer Kieran Gillen and then Alex and I talk about Wikipedia Wars and Chelsea Manning. I'm joined by our political editor Raphael Baer and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week in politics. So first up, Raph, you wrote your column this week about the kind of idea that the landscape hasn't really changed. This isn't a kind of epochal moment where everything has been disordered by the vote over Syria. What gave you that impression? Well, um, largely, one thing I've sort of picked up over the last few years in politics is that when people say that you know, the status quo is not an option, then it normally is. Um, when people say everything has changed, quite often very little has changed. But the main thing was that the day after the votes, there was there were lots of people saying, you know, this is the legislature asserting itself over the executive. It's a great moment for Parliament. It's a very dramatic statement. Um, and then you look into it and you speak to MPs and you find that although sort of in the abstract, Parliament appears to have said or has been said to have said, uh, we don't want to intervene in Syria at all. The MPs themselves had no intention of saying any such thing. Actually, a majority of MPs voted for one or other of the government or opposition motions keeping intervention on the table. It's just the problem is that the maths and the procedure worked out in a peculiar way that meant that in a sort of petulant flourish at the end of the debate, the Prime Minister said, well, fine, no, so I'm sweeping intervention off the table. So bizarrely, actually, it was the Prime Ministerial whim that achieved the result that everyone was saying was this great um, dramatic moment for Parliament. And so just to finish the point, the what you're then left with is this strange situation where actually nothing was resolved uh, no one wants to claim political ownership of this decision because people want to keep their options open. Um, the, the Conservatives have done a very good job of trying to make everyone think that this is somehow sort of not need weak-willed Ed Miliband turning his back on a great moral decision. In fact, it was David Cameron being classic, David Cameron a bit cocky, thinking he could persuade the House back the 100 at the crease and walk off to cheers, um, actually couldn't persuade his own party. These are the problems that have been going on with these leaders for two or three years. And yes, as I say... Strangely, it was very dramatic, but it, what it revealed was the political landscape dismally, in all its mediocrity, exactly as it's been for the last two or three years. And George, you watched all the speeches in the debate. Was there anyone who came out of it well? Did anyone give a brilliant speech and burnish their reputation? I think Malcolm Rifkin was seen as the most convincing articulator of the case for intervention. Some MPs are haunted by Iraq and uh, they see it as a mistake to vote for intervention in 2003. Rifkin is someone who's haunted by Bosnia in 1995 and the failure of the then Conservative government to intervene. Uh, so he was he was widely regarded as having made a much more powerful case than, than David Cameron made. Um, I think 
for Ed Miliband, he's avoided a major party split. So you had one front bencher, Jim Fitzpatrick, who uh, resigned before the vote took place because Miliband refused to explicitly rule out war. Uh, I've been told by uh, a Labour source that up to six others were prepared to resign should Miliband back military action. And that's one reason why there isn't going to be a, a second vote. So it hasn't ended the other problems that Miliband had, but he's come out of it in a, in a much stronger position than, than originally uh, was likely to be the case. Mm. And to move on to um, universal credit, which has been in the news now, this is a policy, I know, George, in particular, you've been following it incredibly closely, and it's a bit, a bit bizarre to us from, from having people who haven't seen the kind of train bearing down on us going, you know, this isn't going to work. Why Why has there been such a failure to acknowledge that this was a, a policy that was headed for disaster? Because from his time in opposition onwards, Ian Duncan Smith has always said this is his master plan, this is what will revolutionise, transform the welfare system, um, in a way comparable to, to Beveridge, who the original founder of the welfare state, and he hasn't been willing to to accept the concerns or hasn't been willing to accept them quickly enough. And now the National Audit Office has published probably the most excoriating report any, anyone can remember about a government project. But at the moment, it's still a village story. So I think the real question is, at what point is it going to become something the public are interested in, uh, that hits the public? And it only applies to a thousand claimants at the moment. So it was amusing. Ian Douglas they scaled back the trial, didn't they, to sort of basically only people with the most simple cases who'd never claimed before, who didn't have any kids, or in six pilot areas, am I right? Yes, exactly. No. The most simple cases. And... If they continue to, if they do choose to roll this out, then it will become a, a serious problem for the government if and when people don't get their benefits in time, so they can't feed their children or heat their homes. I think that's the that's the question now. And Raph, I mean, what's the feeling from the civil service who've been pretty heftily dropped in it by Ian Duncan Smith as being the ones who are to blame for all of this? Well, they're in despair. I mean, from my contacts with DWP officials, um, because. They've said all along that this was going to happen. I mean, you know, I'm sure politicians would say, well, whinging civil servants, you know, it's their lookout. But I think my understanding of it is a lot of this has to land on, you know, at the feet of in Duncan Smith personally. He, when he was leader of the Conservative Party, uh, it was frankly a bit of a disaster. He revealed himself to be a very prickly, very brittle, slightly paranoid um, man, uh, it wasn't a great time to be leader, but it really didn't work out. He didn't manage it properly at all. Um, and a lot of those non-skills, he seems to have brought to the Department for Work and Pensions. And I know people who, from uh, non-partisan organisations, charities, or you know, um, IT companies who have been trying to say for a very long time, what you're trying to do here is tremendously difficult. It won't work. You've really got to look again. You've got to look at the, you know, all sorts of things. And they don't get their their calls aren't returned because around IDS there is this culture that if you're not with him you're against him and it's there is a kind of um, evangelical literally and metaphorical mm. zeal behind it and they shut people out who are who criticise them and as a result you get into a sort of a silo where you just presume that the people who are saying it isn't going to work are in fact your political enemies. And they're not. They're just trying to pass on very important information, that information being it's not going to work. And then guess what? It doesn't work. Um, the, it, it's the, the charge is, you know, what they call sort of faith-based policymaking, that you just think that because IDS's personal 
sort of will to make it happen is enough. Well, no, that's not project management and you're the Secretary of State and you've ballsed it up and take ownership for, for it. Frankly, it's my view on this. But what's most likely to happen now? I mean, to scrap it would be an enormous blow to his authority, surely. Yes, it, it, they, I, it's very hard. It's a flagship project. Uh, the Prime Minister and others have stood up many times and said, well, you know, this... Well, sorry, to, to, to go back to them, crucially... The reason it's so symbolically important is because not just that they, everyone wants to reform the welfare system, you know, it didn't work brilliantly before, but because the direction of reform is said to be fairer and more compassionate. So this is the, the sort of rebuttal to the idea that all the Tories want to do is take money out of the pockets of poor people. Oh, no, they don't, they say. We use universal credit, which makes work pay. This is actually a tremendously progressive, kindly thing that we do because actually we're helping people and Labour let people fester on unemployment and benefit and incapacity benefit. And actually we're the kind-hearted, warm, loving, nurturing Conservative Party. Put that in your pipe, Labour, and smoke it. And so... If that turns out to be complete nonsense, and actually the really the only government welfare policy is taking money out of the pockets of poor people, which it is, um, then this is a problem for the Conservatives, it's a problem for the Conservative brand, it's a problem for the story that the Conservatives are about more than just you know, planting the axe in people's you know um, personal budgets. Um, so they will really not want to let go of the idea that there's more to it than um, being sort of Dickensian villains. Um, but it's very hard to see how actually, in practical terms, they can achieve that. And George, what's the likely Labour response? I mean, I know there's been, Stephen Timms has already written about it this morning, but is it something that they feel empowered to go after very hard? No, they're, they're still committed to universal credit in principle. They say we like the idea... It's just to rather take the wind out of the sails, right? If yeah. you go, but it would work, but not in this way. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, every, almost every NGO, every poverty charity says, in theory, it's a good idea. So you take six complex means-tested benefits and tax credit, merge them into one simple payment so people can see precisely how their income changes as they return to work. Um, Labour's offered cross-party talks, which is not an offer that the Conservatives are going to going to accept. I think I think what's likely now is that you will see further and further delays to it, just to the point to where it withers to just almost just a few symbolic uh, you know job centres that, rather than being this grand overhaul of the national welfare system, its ambition will, will just be drastically reduced. And and I think I think Labour will probably say you know we will reevaluate it and try and you know clean up the mess made by Ian Duncan Smith. Um, but I just think Duncan Smith's original uh, intention, which was to, to go into 2015 and say, you know, we have transformed welfare to make work pay. I think, I, think that's, uh, I think that's over now. I think we probably can all agree on that. Thank you very much, George and Raph. Kieran, you... You used to be a games journalist. You you bailed out of it to write comics. When when did you go full time? Three years ago now. Three years ago, I was thirty five, so two and a half. Two and a half years. I ago. literally ele- I officially left comics on the uh, halfway through my free schools in ten. <laughs> uh, um, but you 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 were you are still a, an extremely well known and renowned games journalist. You and you coined uh, this thing, new games journalism, and that's that's kind of how you made your name. What what is it? What's behind it? Oh, it was it was. Um, in 2003, I was just sort of like forwarding some... The kind of buzzword that floated around was travel journalism to imaginary places. I just... Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of reclaimed the eye, uh, the idea of like, as opposed to just treating this as a list of statistics and numbers, you write about you write about the personal experience, and by doing that, you get a better idea of what it's like to be in these places. 
Um, yeah, and it was just it was a useful metaphor, and people took it various ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was the sort of thing. It, it was a trend that already existed, and I sort of codified mm. it. And wrote, ma- and wrote a quote-unquote manifesto. Mm-hmm. So you hear my voice getting a bit tired. <laughs> um, Ten years on, do you think it's do you think it's had an impact? Do you think it's still around? Are there people taking it further, or is oh, it I, I feel gladly obsolete. That's the um, in the last few years, especially. There's so many voices which make me feel very old in the right in the best possible way. <laughs> As in, the, if I still thought I was the what I was doing was cutting edge, uh, that would be a sad and sorry state of affairs. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's just become the conversation now. Anyone mm-hmm. who does a Let's Play video is basically doing new Basically, game journalism. Just you know, the idea in depth, really intense. Yeah. You know, they, anyone who just sits and just talks and the subjective experience and all these kind of things. These are things that just mm-hmm. gets done now. Anyone, the the way most diaries work and people write game diaries, that's basically talking about what I'm doing. These are the very populist edge. And, you know, and there's still people who like I've forgotten the name of the guy who did like an entire book about his experience of playing Far Cry. I haven't read that. Uh, he did a playing Far Cry 2 with permadeath on, and he just writ it, wrote it all as a single enormous 50,000, 60,000 word thing. Wow. Uh, so yeah, you know, it, it still goes right. It's just, it's, the good thing is just part of the conversation. It was it was actually quite noticeable that Bioshock Infinite was the one where I really noticed it. Basically, every single review discussion about it was incredibly first-person subjective. Partially, I think, because it was a game where it was widely agreed that you didn't need to give a buyer's guide style review mm. it was big enough that you could move on past that yeah I would agree on that entirely and that's the thing is these are always just tools in the toolbox mm-hmm. I mean I was I was a person who loved game journalism before doing it uh, I mostly love game journalism when doing it <laughs> uh, but you know but I read outside and it's like as the name implies I was taking techniques some other forms of journalism and there's a lot of music journalism what I do in terms of that toolbox the slightly mm-hmm. wanky toolbox um, so but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a good place to be. You also um, you co-founded uh, a website, Rock Paper Shotgun, which is which is massive. I mean, it, it's been it was an extraordinarily successful uh, venture. Was that created in part to, to further these ideas, or was it just <laughs> something else that you felt needed? I trust uh, there's a bit of it's a mixture of uh, people sort of compare between idealism and cynicism, and occasionally there's a wonderful moment when both are the same thing. <laughs> when in fact doing the right thing is also doing the sensible and profitable thing. <laughs> In our case, there was no, uh, there was no honest um, character-led PC games website. There just wasn't the idea of writing a single format site was kind of slightly out of fashion, and, and we just saw there was no decent PC site. Let's just do it because we, were, me and my three colleagues, just saw the space, saw the space in the market, and we also believe in the PC as a kind of a a more democratic way of gaming. I kind of get quite twitchy over the kind of the fascistic control of console companies. <laughs> I kind of like drunkenly swore I will not play a format exclusive this generation. Mm. Yeah, the other night, and I won't, I won't do it. I'll, I'll weaken at some <laughs> this point. generation being the, the one that's about to come. Because I think the, 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 the idea of games being tied to any one system in some kind of hard coded way, it just it's just bullshit. It's, you know, it's the idea of I'm sorry, you can't watch the Matrix. It's not on Betamax. Um, if you know, I'm doing yeah. all the old references there in that one sentence. I just, it's just ludicrous, and the idea that it's become somehow naturalised is, is just always got me kind of angry because it doesn't make much sense to me for games as an art form, um, as well as being very tied to PC gaming. Rock Paper Shotgun, I know, has um, Rab Florence doing regular board game reviews for it, doesn't it? Is that do you see a natural link specifically between PC games and board gaming, or is that just you wanted someone on board games a little bit and was available? There's an arguable they're both more free ideologically than a console game due to the nature of permission of the console mm-hmm. owner. You can make the argument I think is just a big giggle. You know, um, I mean, I, when I started reading games magazines, they were you had the big cultural. 
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Column. So I first, I wasn't reading comics as a teenager, but I first became aware of like the 80s, um, Super, uh, comic renaissance across mm-hmm. the whole thing just people going writing in games magazines just okay. as kind of part of it and so that the idea of it being part of the texture of the larger society <laughs> and there's so many places that rip off board game stuff especially mm-hmm. I mean, the, the last 15 years of board games have been a really strong renaissance uh, on lots of different ways and there's, you know, there's enough cultural interchange to make it kind of worthwhile you know and Rab said I want to do a column, and you're going to say no to Rab. He's, exactly. He's tough. He's like, he's like a, <laughs> you know, you've seen him right. He could punch you out of an adverb. The other area where I think there is that same sort of anarchic field, there's there's slightly more control. Is is mobile games? Is is iPhone, iPad, Android games? Do you think that is the future? Do you do you think it's always going to be sidelined to PC gaming and consoles? I think it's really... I must admit, I used to have a big rambling dark future of gaming when the entire <laughs> entire of uh, the capitalist economy comes crashing down and we're basically what gaming would be like post-society. And it would basically be PC gaming or stuff which is bad people can do it. Because the Ludic urge is, goes all the way back to the first time anyone made a bone die. So this is yeah. something that's always been with humans. And the microchip was kind of, I don't know, the Gutenberg press. The idea that this is, allows it to become something, at least in terms of availability, what it was not before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, a joking aside, I mean, a little bit. I mean, the, the, the actual the fuzziness about stuff. I mean, look at Steam on the PC. Steam, I always basically argue, is, is a console. Yeah. I mean, consoles, people think about the actual format, but consoles is really about control. It's about the idea that this is something that you play games through and stops you playing games which it does not want you mm-hmm. to. And that's and, kind of and, Steam's an ideological structure, you know. It's and like, carrots about carrot. There's carrots about it as well. There's a lot, you know. Yeah, it gives you some. But you know, same as Steam. Yeah. Um, and some of those carrots are completely fair, and some of them are like the the format exclusive yeah. stuff, which is um, economic epiphenomenon. I'm going to say, <laughs> which is just not quite sure that's what I meant, but it sounded good. Um, the the new generation of consoles, the Xbox or the PS One, in some ways, it seems like they are platform makers who've realised. The, the strengths of PCs. So they're, they're going big on downloadable games, they're going uh, big on sort of sharing it. Do you think this is the generation where consoles finally steal what's keeping PC gaming alive, or do you think it's the generation where they, they die? Or I think it's that kind of... It, it merges into whatever the future becomes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, not an, it's not a new riff, but the idea that this is the last console generation is kind of said by a lot of people, <laughs> and I think that's probably true. I mean, the irony over the whole, everyone gets so angry with Microsoft for the, their control yeah. and what they were planning, um, is that by the end of a generation, both of them will be doing that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, I, I, would, I would very happily put money in that whilst you can do it right now at the beginning, by the end, everything will be downloadable, everything might be streaming yeah. by then. And nobody, I, you know, nobody questions whether or not you can share a downloadable game, yeah. even on Steam or PCs. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I was in 10 years, you know, what's the broadband infrastructure going to be like? You know, um, 
when people say, oh, we're not going to have streaming as popular as then due to the fact that, you know, Australia's got shit broadband. Yeah. But, you know, we were pretty bad 10 years ago. Also, I 10 mean, years is a long time. And that's how long this generation is going to be. And, and this generation isn't, they're not, they're not governments. They don't have to be fair to everyone. And it seems perfectly likely that Microsoft will release a console that can't be played by people in the countryside. Yes. And they'll say, screw you, because we can get enough money from people in the cities. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's, it's all, it's the cold, hard numbers of it all. And that's the, <laughs> and the great era of the PC, which is the kind of the, the punk rock romanticism of it is, I'd go upstairs and make a game right now, and I could release it. I can make it on some kind of shitty game maker thing. And shitty main, 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 game makers are much better than they used to be. Exactly. Uh, and it'd be on the internet and it could be awesome. You know, and, uh, and that's important. You know, that's the this is a very pure burst of what gaming crop is for me. You know, um, and the PC, RPS, we kind of define the PC rather than the IBM compatible. Mm-hmm. We kind of, oh yeah, the Amiga's a PC, the Spectrum is a PC. Mm-hmm. This is uh, in contrast to a closed system, which has got a proprietary format owner, which probably says whether you can make a game on it or not. Yeah. That's what for us a PC meant. Okay. Um, and it wasn't really even about the game. So we make lots of jokes about PC games, they're mainly about terrain. Um, but, you know, I grew up playing awful. The Amiga was always me. I, that's the kind of most important games machine I played. And the point being, it was a it was a broad palette of what games you 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 touched with. You know, the library was not just action games or yeah. whatever. The the, the the Catholic education essentially, <laughs> and you kind of get a you get a little bit of that more now. I mean, the moving RPS when we started, two thousand seven was about when the indie current revolution really started okay, to kick off yeah. we um we, and we were like quite towards the front of people covering it and we were kind of this is what we wanted to see and then in a beautiful synchronicity we decided to launch a site just as it was genuinely starting to happen and i'd been arguing with people like i don't know um introversion mm-hmm. earlier in the noughties that this was very important this will be useful this is more about as opposed to the triple a thing this is about uh, more the cottage industry <laughs> the idea that you can be a bespoke artisan game and by rather than getting your budget ballooned out to enormous, let's simulate a city with perfect man face. Um, let, let's you know, let's use two pixels, but make them very beautiful pixels. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully, that has come to pass. Yes, Kieran. I'm joined by Alex Hearn, our senior departing correspondent. This is um, Alex's last week at the New States. Although I think he will live on because we have a pre-recorded interview. Um, Alex, let's talk a little bit about Wikipedia. You wrote mm-hmm. earlier um, about the kind of Wikipedia edit wars, about the change from Bradley Manning to Chelsea Manning. So yeah. Chelsea Manning, who was involved in the WikiLeaks trial, uh, announced that she was. You wanted to use female pronouns from now on. She wanted to be addressed as Chelsea. Yep. People of Wikipedia, how did they respond to that? So one of the one of the best things about Wikipedia is that it can be incredibly nimble. Um, it's not actually an official aim of the site. It tries to be more accurate than right, than fast rather. But it still means that you know when a fact changes and Wikipedia is thus out of date, editors consider it their duty to make it right again. Um, when Chelsea Manning announced that she was transgender and wanted to use female pronouns and be known as Chelsea. Um, one Wikipedia editor, within around 15 minutes of the news breaking, had moved the page to Chelsea Manning. So it is now n.wikipedia.org slash wiki slash Chelsea underscore Manning. Um, that then actually got reverted back after a couple of minutes, but by someone who simply hadn't heard the news and thought it was an embarrassing error. Um, it then moved back to Chelsea Manning for quite a long time um it stayed there for the better part of a week as various wikipedia editors had 
an increasingly heated argument on the talk page. Um, the problem with Wikipedia is that it's arcane as hell. And if there's anything that isn't just a disagreement about pure fact where you can point to things, the procedures that it has for dealing with those things are quite close to outsiders and quite hard to un unravel. Um, eventually, at the end of these closed procedures, it was decided that there hadn't been enough consensus to move Chelsea Manning's page from Bradley Manning in the first place, so it was moved back to Bradley Manning. Now, the admins of Wikipedia... Um, are quite keen to stress that that's not the same as moving it back from Chelsea to Bradley. It's not the same as there being a consensus that it should be Bradley. There is merely a consensus that it shouldn't be Chelsea. This is what happens if you have a completely decentralised community building up its own governing bodies over a over 10 year long stretch of time. It, it gets tricky. But this is my problem with it. So I take the example of pop star Cheryl Cole mm -hmm. who was born Cheryl Tweedy she then married Ashley Cole took his name for you know for all her publicity purposes um there was no problem there about changing her name to the name that she wanted to be called by quite the the big counter example that you see a lot in this discussion is Yusuf Islam Cat Stevens um whose Wikipedia page is still headlined Cat Stevens now there's there's two at least two Wikipedia policies which are built up, which affect it. One saying that you should refer to people the way they want to be referred, but the other one saying that you should use the common name for things. And obviously, at times, those will contradict each other. Prince is another brilliant example. These days, he is at least Prince, but when he was an undecipherable symbol, it's hard to argue that that should have been the headline of his piece rather than Prince. It's very hard to Google. It's very that. hard to Google. He's pre-internet pop star Prince. Yeah. Um, but no, and, and so the problem for Wikipedia is that to give the best spin on people who want the article to be Bradley Manning, and there needs to be the best spin because there are a lot of people, and it, it's quite clear, there are a lot of people who think that transgender people are weird weighing into this discussion. You see people going, if someone wants to be a dog, that's fine. It's like, you're not helping here. It's the gay marriage argument, isn't it? But if we let gay people get yeah. married, we'll stop me marrying my sister. Yeah, if like, we let um... transgender people just say they're women, does that mean we have to start referring to people as Vulcans if they say they're Vulcans? It's like, your comparison is kind of offensive from the minute you made it there. Um, but one of the things I think is really interesting, we've written quite a lot about trans issues here at the NS, is, is where you do if people want to use non-binary pronouns. Because that's where, as an editor, actually, I would I would draw the line. I'm fine with people wanting to refer to themselves as he or she, depending on where they are in their gender identity. But it's really difficult if people say they want to use, for example, ooh or here. Because I think that uh, for a lot of readers, that would just make the whole thing basically unintelligible. We haven't got to a stage where we accept it. Quite, and likewise... Uh, I mean, most newspapers, for instance, don't similarly accept weird capitalization of things. If, if you want to have your name in all caps, you're going to find it hard to get a newspaper to print it. Or likewise, all lowercase is roughly it's vaguely more acceptable, and E.E. E. Cummings tends to get away with but it. But E.E. Cummings, there's, you're now straying <laughs> into heated internet debate waters, because actually there's not an enormous amount of evidence that E.E. E. Cummings capitalised down his name always. Hmm? Um, and well, has, there are signatures in existence, I believe, from having read an article a couple of years ago, where he caps up his name. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really difficult. And I think this is one of the things that's interesting about where the internet has taken language is that so much does, for example, revolve around being Googleable. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a great pub near me that's called the Public House, and I want to just tell them that they've called their pub literally the worst name that anyone could call it because it means you type in Public House Islington, and it goes. Well, you want to go to the pub? Here well, are some yeah, pubs. Yeah, here are some pubs, and you think, what have you done here? We had a great piece by um, our new blogger Sarah Dighton, who's joining us about the fact that she um, she changed her name to her husband's name. One of the kind of nice upsides of that was that she had a therefore a much more Googleable name. She had a much mm. more distinctive name. Um, but it's a big. I mean, it's, it comes up in in when women, when we get married. It comes up when people transition genders because you are essentially leaving behind a whole trail of stuff that is associated Quite. with your previous identity. And that comes back to Chelsea Manning because one of the big arguments that people were using to say that Chelsea Manning's common name was Bradley is the sheer weight of articles about Bradley Manning. Uh, Wikipedia editors and the admins ended up siding with this argument, argued that. Essentially, if people are reading an article about Bradley Manning written in 2008, they are going to search Bradley Manning and they're going to want to read a Wikipedia article about Bradley Manning. It's not a particularly compelling argument because Wikipedia has redirects. You can search for Bradley Manning and end up on a page, headline Chelsea Manning, that mentions that Chelsea Manning's name used to be Bradley Manning. But that's the argument that Wikipedia went with. And it's it's got a month. In a month, if the weight of articles comes down on the side of Chelsea Manning, uh, there is a chance that it will be redirected. In the meantime, Wikipedia's, essentially their Supreme Court, um, is looking at it and they might decide to overrule it, but they are also quite a slow-moving body. Um, For now, Chelsea Manning's Wikipedia page is headline Bradley Manning. That's not going to change. But at least isn't the story a mostly optimistic one because when Chelsea made that announcement at the end of the trial... People very, I saw, I mean, you know, the Daily Mail, which you don't imagine maybe being the most kind of progressive newspaper when it comes to trans issues, was absolutely fine with calling her Chelsea Manning using female pronouns throughout. We have got to a stage now where there have been enough high profile transgender people that it's, that at least is something that people have got their heads around. Yeah, transitioning seems to genuinely be accepted as something that happens now in the wider world, which is fantastic and it is good news. Obviously, the other thing that happened when Chelsea Manning announced her transition was a lot of people were horrible. But I think that is sadly less surprising. I think my favourite comment was Catelyn Moran saying that um, the idea that you would get the uh, prison to pay for, you know, you go to prison specifically to get them to pay for the gender reassignment surgery was like Alan Partridge turning up with his extra big plate (laughs) at the buffet. And it was kind of, these people felt that they somehow had been like, been cheated. Like, oh, you you people have it so easy with your free surgery. Like the idea of being a woman in a man's prison is a really, you know, like it's going to be a holiday camp. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope I'm hopeful. And um, this is you know your last appearance. We can end on a hopeful <laughs> note that we have come to a, a watershed of acceptance. I think so, and I hope that I hope that life isn't as hard as it might end up being for Chelsea Manning. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis produced by Caroline Crampton and edited by Philip Morn. It features music from the Underscore Orchestra, Devil with a Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week, and in the meantime, you can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.